Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 307. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 307 you're listening to. My guest today is Kevin Churko, who is originally from Canada, currently resides in the United States, and he is a producer, engineer, mixer, and songwriter. He's worked with Ozzy Osbourne, Rob Zombie, Papa Roach, Modern Science, Five Finger Death Punch, Shania Twain, and Hell Yeah, amongst many, many others. And one aspect of his career that's very fascinating that we're going to talk about is that Kevin worked for four years for Mutt Lang in Switzerland. Moved the whole family there. We're going to talk all about that in his journey, which I think you'll find quite fascinating. And I'm very excited to have Kevin join us today. So, Kevin Churko, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. I'm just going to share some things that have been going on. Yep, no heavy-duty uh, lessons to, to rant about or anything like that. Just some random stuff that's going on. Oh, let's start with this. I got a, a great gift in the mail, completely unexpected, too, from uh, former WCA guest Justin Perkins. Justin was involved in the remaster of the replacements, Please to Meet Me box set. I guess you could call it a box. Looked like it came in not quite a box, but anyhow, it's, uh, you know, like any box set, it's a combination of the record remastered, which he did an outstanding job on. I, I highly encourage you to check it out. If you're a Replacements fan, and in particular, if you're a fan of the Please to Meet Me record, which I am, uh, you gotta check this out. I think I'm really, really happy with what Justin did. There's a bunch of outtakes of, you know, different mixes and, you know, demos and stuff like that. All the stuff that you would expect for that. It was a combination of vinyl and CDs. And yes, that's right, I have a CD player uh, right here in front of me, an NAD CD player that I really, really enjoy. Yes, I still listen to CDs. <laughs> I still own all these CDs, so, you know, why, why wouldn't I listen to them? Just like all the vinyl I own, I, I listen to that too. Anyhow, so check it out. Please to meet me, the new box set uh, that's out. I think it's on, I'm going to say it's on Rhino. And uh, Justin Perkins remastered it. Yeah, fantastic job, Justin. On the, um, the backup front, you might recall in one of my past rants, I'm always evaluating and reevaluating how I'm backing stuff up and taking care of my client's stuff, the podcast any personal things, you know, pictures, videos of the kids, you know. As a family of four, you tend to take a lot of pictures, and, of course, early on when the kids are young, you take a lot of video. Where is that all going to go? How is it going to work? I'll probably talk more about this at another point, but I bought one of these um, Synology NAS servers. Yeah, and it basically it's it's a, a wondrous device. I'm replacing all my Drobos with uh, some Synology stuff, and this thing's been really cool. And the more I dig into it, I'll, I'll tell you more about it. And, you know, it's a really great product, I have to say. I don't know if you've had good experience or bad experience with them, but I'm having a great experience, and uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll try to get them to uh, sponsor the show because, you know, when I come across stuff that I really dig, I really want uh, those companies to, you know, come and be a part of the show. So anyways, Synology, yeah, backing up all this stuff, and then that backs it up to Backblaze, their B2 series of backing up, which is like, a, it's kind of like an Amazon S3 type thing. So yeah, doing all that kind of stuff. Backing up to a server that backs up to the cloud. The three, two, one rule, right? You gotta have three copies, two copies local and one copy in the cloud. And then you can, I guess, ideally rest easy at night. And then transfers. Let's talk about that for a second. You might remember in one of my rants, I mentioned that I bought this uh, Fostex 8-track off of uh, Reverb.com, and I got a great deal on it. It was 150 bucks, and you know, you find those machines typically for like 600 to 1,000. I just didn't want to pay that. And I was hoping that everything would be good with it, and everything was to a point. 
As it turned out, track eight would not play back. So I took it to my local tech, Rance Mannion. Uh, so anybody in the Bay Area, if you're ever needing an outstanding person to work on pro audio equipment, Rance Mannion is the king, in my opinion. He's fantastic. Anyways, Rance took a look at it and told me, well, you got a problem here with track eight. The winding, um, I think that's what he said, came undone. So long story short, we had to do a head replacement. And it just so happens that a good buddy of mine had a parts machine with a head stack ready to go that he graciously offered to me for free. And so we did a head replacement. I've got the machine sitting behind me. I just brought it home. I'm crossing my fingers that I can do this transfer. These are tapes I've had since uh, around 93, and I've been carrying them around ever since, hoping to do a transfer to do some better mixes. This is a band I was in, The Sextants, many years ago. Uh, a band that if you're uh, interested, I'm sure you could uh, find some 50 to 99 cent copies on eBay of the, of the record that we put out. Actually, we put out a couple records. But anyways, I'm kind of in charge of the catalog at this point. We have a Bandcamp site. You can go check that out if you want. I'll put a link in the show notes. Anyways, long story short, I'm getting ready to transfer all these tapes here and crossing my fingers that it works out well. So, you know, $150 investment turned into uh, $650 in the end because of, you know, I had to pay Rance to do his work and he always does a great job. So I'm hoping that this machine can make it through this transfer and then I'm going to get rid of the machine because I want to just be done with this project, get it out there. So, so yeah, that's it. That's what's going on in the Boudreaux household. Nothing too serious lately, just that kind of stuff. So I hope uh, in your world, you are finding projects to occupy your time and to keep you from going nuts in this crazy pandemic. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together.
That's it. Let's get to it. Kevin Churko here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to meet you, and you come to us courtesy of our mutual friend, Mike Cuddy. I love Mike. I have to tell you that I didn't realize it because I just never bothered to look it up, but you actually mixed a song that I'm very fond of the song, and I'm very fond of how the song sounds. I'm talking about Ozzy Osbourne's Let Me Hear You Scream. Wow. And when that came out and I heard that, I was so blown out of the water. I'm 50. We're close in age. I think you're around 52. Yep. Junior high, high school. I was an Ozzy Osbourne fan. So when I heard this, I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And I never bothered to look it up until much later and figured out it was you that worked on it. So I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, I'm a fan of how you work. I've watched several videos of yours and how you work with your son. And we got a lot to get into. So in short, welcome. Thank you very much. One thing I want to jump right into is where you grew up. You're originally from Canada. I'm Canadian by birth. Moose Jaw is the little town I'm from. When I was born, it had 35,000 people in it, and it still has 35,000 people in it. It's just for all the people who are born there, enough of them leave that the population never, never changes. Well, growing up there, when did audio become a relevant thing in your life? Both my parents were from farms, but they were both the first of their families to get off the farm. And my dad went to university to study music and my mom became a teacher. And so they had a family band or actually they had a band band. And then eventually my dad got pissed off and off at the guys in his band. He said, you know, I can hire my kids and they can do better than this. And then he he hired his kids. (laughs) And we we did the family thing. And so I played my first wedding, which is mostly polkas and waltzes for my Auntie Delphine when I was like 10, I think, or something like that. And then so music was always a big part of it. And then like music was a start of it. And then pretty quickly because of the live thing and just because of my nature, I became more the live audio guy for the band too. So it started out with just doing the PA rig, later on ringing the room out, those kinds of simple things. And then, but really my love was always in writing music and creating music more than playing it. And so when I was about, I think maybe 14, I convinced my little brother to go halfers with me on a Tascam 244, which was a uh, little four track recording unit. And that's really when the skies opened up and the sun shone down and it was like a magical, exciting thing that oh, this is what multi-track recording means. So, okay, so I'm going to record my drums in my PV mixer, record that in track one, and then I'm going to play that back and play the bass. And then I'm pretty soon out of song. I go, wow, that's amazing. And then, so that that was really how that all kind of came about. And from there, then it became a little bit more of a matter of the bands I was in, including my family band, couldn't really afford the good guys. I shouldn't say that because we worked with a lot of good guys when we were younger, but let's just say the name name guys. And so, I, you know, I was just more into it and I was just maybe a little bit more passionate. I was a kid. I had more time. I could sit there and ring a snare drum out for the whole day and it's not costing me a dime. <laughs> So I I think that we just ended up working with me more than anybody else, including my band. And we did work with great people over the years that taught me a lot and and the other guys too, but really became my passion, I think, more than the other guys. They were fond of being on stage and getting the girls and whatever. And I just wanted to make some great, great music. Now, I may be making a huge jump forward here in time, but you spent time in Switzerland with Mutt Lang. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. That's a that's a huge jump forward. But step two was working for Mutt Lang. Yeah, you're playing in the family band, and you go work yeah. with Mutt Lang. That's how it works for every Canadian, right? Mutt heard heard about the quality of the recordings of the family band, and he wanted to hire hire me. <laughs> what led up to you getting to work with Mutt Lang? Okay, so let me fast forward twenty years from that buying the first Tascam two two forty four. And my brother, Corey, was in Shania's band. And he played fiddle in her band, amongst other things. Now he's, I think he might even be the musical director now. Now he does everything. He's actually a guitar player, but he was one of the only Canadian violin players who looked rock at that time. 
And so he fit the bill and he could really play. And we had been playing country bands for a long time at that point. So he was very comfortable with The Devil Went Down to Georgia, or he could also play Eddie Van Halen Souls. So he got that gig. So he was around them when Mutt needed somebody. I mean, I'll tell you the other story part of that too, which is a little sadder yet happier. And I hope I don't bore your listeners here or take too much time. But I got the audition for a drumming gig too, because once they loved Corey, then they still needed a drummer. So Corey said, hey, my brother plays drums. By that time, I was already kind of doing the studio thing full time. Corey was already being an animator for some TV show and we had kind of quit music in a, well, not, I didn't quit music and neither did he, but let's just say that we were at that young age, we were already bitter because remember we had been doing it since we were like kids, kids. You know, I mean, we both woke up bitter one one day going, well, we've been working our asses off for really for decades at that point. And maybe it's time to get jobs that pay us actual money. And I had a family. I had had already two kids at that time. So he went into animation and that sort of thing and and graphics. And I kind of went into the studio world more full time. So anyways, fast forwarding, I got the call. Do you want to try out? And I go, yeah, this is my (laughs) big shot. I'm going to go to New York and get the gig of a lifetime. From Moose Jaw to New York in in 20 simple years. <laughs> so I did, did. I mean, they loved Corey and he he was a lock. He was already locked down. I think his first gig was on David Letterman or something like that. So it was it was crazy time for him. And I go down there and they gave me a list of songs I had to rehearse and all that. And I rehearsed them to death. And then right on the, I'm in the hotel room in New York and right the day before they say, oh, they changed it. They're going to rehearse this, this other song, which I had never even heard. It was like number 17 on the album kind of thing. And, and I didn't really know it. And I'm not making excuses. I'm just, yeah, I am kind of making excuses for how much I didn't do the job well. And then they wanted me to sing harmonies and play a song I didn't really know. And anyways, it went kind of from bad to worse. Not horrible, horrible, but bad enough that I didn't get the job, let's say. And then just to solidify it, walking out of the rehearsal studio in New York, I was walking down the road and I got shit on by a pigeon. (laughs) I had this brand new pleather jacket. I heard she was a vegetarian, so I didn't want to wear leather or anything. So I had this brand new pleather jacket and right on my shoulder, literally as I'm walking out of the rehearsal studio was a big blop of shite. <laughs> and I thought, well, that pretty much solidifies my trip to New New York. I mean, this is how it goes. That's that's as far as I'm getting. And then I went back to, to Saskatchewan and kept on recording and kept on getting better at my true craft and my true trade, not knowing that there were still, you know, better things to come than just playing drums. So, and I know you were a drummer too. I mean, all the best producer engineers are drummers, I think. But fast forwarding again. So after a couple of years of him being on the road, he had heard that Mutt uh, was looking for a new guy. And so they had actually remembered that on my resume that I had put studio. I was doing a lot of studio work. So again, they really knew Corey really well at that time. And personality-wise, they were all getting along really well. I mean, she's Canadian. He's Canadian. Mutt loves Canadians. One of his best friends is Brian Adams. So they got along great with Canadians. And she said, doesn't your brother do that? And Corey goes, yeah, yeah. Well, give me his number. And so Corey gave him my number and he emails me at that time. I think email was still pretty new for, for me then. But he says, hey, I'm just giving you the heads up. Nothing may happen of this and don't be expecting anything. But just in case, I forwarded your number to Mutt and he's looking for a guy. And <laughs> so Wow. Like, no pressure. You got to be kidding because Mutt just wasn't a gig to me. I mean, that was like the gig to me. That was like, you know, from ACDC to the Cars to Def Leppard. I mean, those were the bands that I loved and wanted to work on music like that. And so it was the perfect gig. So then at that point, I constructed an email that said, just forward this on to him. I said, I know you're not going to give me his email address or and he didn't even do email at that time in any case, but just this is why I'm the best guy for the job. And I got him to send to pass along the note. And like a month later, all of a sudden I get a call in the middle of the night at 4 a.m. So that's a tough time to get up and be on your game. And in fact, I wasn't even up. My son was up. And so he got the call and he woke me up and thought it sounded important. An accented guy on the other end of the phone. And he knew about the whole mutt thing too. So I talked to mutt for a little bit of time and we just chatted. That's all it was. And maybe three weeks later, we chatted again. And then he asked me if I wanted to come out and meet him. And so it started. <laughs> what was the crux of the conversations on the phone? It was kind of typical things that I would even ask a guy now, like my assistant now, I probably ask him these questions like, what kind of music do you like? What are you listening to? What kind of records did you like? What are you doing? What's your day like now? 
Just some small talk. A lot of times I, I find out almost more from the small talk, even when I'm meeting with a potential employee or artist, what's your family life like? What do your parents do? All those kinds of things. So, I mean, honestly, I can't remember the exact conversation. I remember it was around 40 minutes in length. So I thought, well, it couldn't have been that bad or it would have been off the phone. You know, he just kind of got a feel for me, who I was. And I was thrilled to talk to him, period. So I can't remember, you know, hopefully I would have asked him some questions. I mean, I'd have to ask him and he probably can't recall it any more than me. But I got off the phone feeling good, like, wow, that was surreal at 4 a.m. in the morning. And I was in Regina at the time, and that was like probably early fall. So it was freezing. It was like in Canadian and Celsius, it would have been like minus 20 or something like that which in Fahrenheit American style would be like probably 10 under Fahrenheit, under zero. Uh-huh. You know, so it was cold. It was, it was like a winter, winter fall there. But just had a little bit of chat and I again had a chat a few weeks later and then he just wanted to know if I wanted to come out there and meet him. And so I said, let me check my schedule, looked at my watch, counted 1,001, 1,002, 1,003 and said, yeah, I can work it in. <laughs> And he he flew me to Switzerland. Now, my brain just kicks in with all the logistical aspects of this. My first thought is, well, okay, hang on a second. You've got a family, and if you're going to spend all that time with Mutt, how'd you make that work? Well, it wasn't really even a question. I mean, I've been working for that my whole life, so it's like you take it. But it was difficult at the start, definitely, because remember, I've been in bands, so they were used to me being gone for a week here, two weeks there. Even at that time, I was drumming for another band who I'd go away for a week or two every now and then, and so they were used to Dad having to go on the road. So this this wasn't too much different than that, other than I really didn't know how long it would be. So when I officially went out to the work, the first work period, let's call it, was a month. So the trial period, the going out there, getting to know him was three days. He flew me out there. I didn't sleep the entire time. He flew me back and then didn't call me again for a month. And then he said, do you want to come out here and start working for a reel? And I said, yeah. So then he flew me back there again. And it was like a month. And my brother, all he also flew my brother there because he wanted to have a couple of guys working, doing things in different rooms. So I was there. I mean, remember the first little segment was like almost 30 days. And I literally didn't leave the studio the entire time because he had some accommodations in the studio too. So it's like upstairs, I go to sleep. I go down and we work all day. I go up, sleep for four or five hours. I go down and work all day. And it was like trial by fire. Well, I thought it was trial by fire, but in the end, that's just the way that he works. I don't know. I always thought he must be testing me because no human being can work this long or this hard or this steady. And he he does. I mean, he he just doesn't doesn't give me a task and leaves. I mean, he sits there and we work and he's very uh, diligent and works himself exceptionally hard. And I was used to that, so it wasn't very difficult at all. I was just surprised by it. I would have thought that someone at that station in life in that position would maybe have a little more fun in life or something or go skiing or whatever in Switzerland. I mean, there's so many great things to do. But also he was behind. One of the reasons why he hired me was because he was getting behind with the other other gentleman that he had. And so he, he needed someone to work a little bit faster. Anyway, so to get back to your question was how to work with the family. So I worked for 30 days and then he flew me back for a week and went home for like five, six days. It takes a day to get home and then you're there for four days and then a day to get back. And I worked for another month and he'd fly me home for a week. And then I worked for another month and he'd fly me home for a week. And that went on for about six months. And then he just said one day after he kind of tidied up some projects and had a little bit of a breather, he just said, do you want to move your family here? I go, yeah, I want my family here. I think it's good for kids to get out of their element. And we're Canadian, so French is a national language there too. And we were in the French side of Switzerland. So I thought it really can't hurt. They didn't know any French other than how to count and basic phrases. But I thought, well, this will be really great for them and for all of us. And sure enough, it was. So we, I went home, told the family, we're moving to Switzerland. We're going to Switzerland. How many kids did you have at that point? Two. Okay, that's, that's doable. Yeah. Well, I mean, it gets worse for for them. So my daughter was in third grade and I literally dropped her off at French public school when she was, I guess I would be eight. They put her in a classroom that had an English speaking teacher too, just to kind of get her going. But if you ask her the question, she'll say he never spoke a word of English the whole time. It's like you're in it and you go from zero to 60 really fast when you're a kid and everybody's speaking a different language around you. So he was a great teacher for her and she played with the kids and she, of all of us, she knows French the most. And I was working with my, we were speaking English the whole time. 
I could barely order pizza on the phone. So she'd have to order it. She became our little translator everywhere we went. We needed Chloe that her speak for us. My son was in high school, so it was a little tougher for him in different ways. And he learned the books better as far as how to read and write French a little, little bit better. But as far as accent, when you're eight years old, you don't have an accent. You just pick up the accent of wherever you are. Even when she goes to Paris now, they'll peg her as being from Switzerland or somewhere like that not Paris. And in Canada, she can certainly not hang with the French Canadians in that way. They would probably think that she's from Paris. So it's a dialect just like if you were from Texas or you were from Minnesota or something like that. Uh It was a big change for the whole family and the wife too. I mean, it was crazy. I look back and think I was a crazy guy, but it was good. It was good for us all. But I mean, you're you're working for Mutt, so I assume the money is good enough to support a family of four in Switzerland? Yeah. So he took care of me real good. He's a great guy when it comes to that, or at least he was with me. I can only speak about my experiences with him. But I mean, I wasn't getting rich, but I shouldn't have been getting rich. I was there to learn and there to do a job as best as I could. And I just tried to do that job as best I could. And I had the stability that I, I knew it wasn't like even now. I mean, my phone could not ring and I could never work again ever in my life. With him, it was his job and his career and, and his world. And I was just part of it. And as long as I showed up every day and did my job, I'd, I'd have work and money and the family would live. And he gave us enough to, to rent a really nice house just on the side of a mountain over overhanging the lake and had money to go places on weekends every now and then when I had a weekend off. We traveled. We did as much traveling with family as we could. He, he even took us to some uh, places like Vienna. We went as a big group, places like that. And it's an education you can't give your kids when they're growing up. You can't say, let's go to Paris for back to school shopping. But that's literally what my wife did is they got on the train and for back to school shopping one year, they went to Paris and bought some clothes and whatever they bought there. And I was working, of course. And then they came back. I think they stayed overnight one night and came back the next day and they had the school shopping done. Maybe a couple weekends later, the family went to Rome, did that whole thing. My wife and I traveled when we could. Kane was old enough to hang with Chloe and kind of be a babysitter for her. So our parents would come visit and stuff like that. An amazing experience all the way around. Yeah, it was. Truly. I don't want to make this interview completely about Mutt Lang, but he has a particular track record, reputation, hardworking reputation. So what were the big takeaways from a recording perspective and a business perspective that you carry with you to this day in your practice? I'd have to say it's like university. You got to qualify to get into university, but then you start learning. And it's pretty much like that. I mean, there is so many takeaways I think the biggest picture at the top of the at the top of the pyramid of knowledge that I got was you got to work. You have to work hard. I mean, the stupidest question I ever asked him was, "How do I succeed? How do I succeed in this career? How do I get to be you?" And the answer was remarkably simple: just get good. <laughs> okay, yeah, but how do I get good? But that's the answer: is just get good, and everything will take care of itself. I think he said that too: just get good, and everything will take care of itself. And at that point, I was thinking, oh yeah, easy for you to say. You're the guy. But I think in the end, that was the obvious answer is you want to succeed, just get good. Now, just get good to me means different things now than it would have then. Then it would have meant just get good at writing a song, just get good at recording drums, just get good at mixing. But it's really more so than that. I think that when I look at those around me and people who've succeeded or people who haven't in the ways that they might have wanted to, just get good also means how to handle a client, how to talk to an A&R guy, how to keep your money, how not to go down the rabbit hole of bad choices. There's so many ways to wrap that answer of just get good up that it's not so simple as just to say, well, now I can record drums like nobody else can. So now the world's going to be falling at my feet. It's not that at all. It's like, well, it's easy to have a perfect situation and come out with a good result. It's very difficult to have a bad situation and come up with a good result. So I think that for people who succeed, it's probably more likely that as Forrest Gump would say, if you get lemons, you make lemonade. And that's part of getting good. And so I never looked on, well, I shouldn't say I never looked on a bad situation as bad. I always looked on it as being bad. Like, do I, I can't believe I got to do this job or this or that. Or, But I look back on it now in a different place and go, wow, thank God I did that job because I learned how to do X, Y, Z by having to do X, Y, Z. And certainly in my case, I've had to do a lot of different things. And a lot of that, my result is being Canadian in the sense that I came from a small town, a small area. Canada's a small country, population-wise. 
And I had to do a lot of different things. I had to record polka bands growing up. I didn't necessarily want to do that, but I had to do that and learn how to record a saxophone and learn how to record an accordion and just talk to someone out of your element too. Like I was a young guy, they were older guys, and you learn how to take care of a customer. And really a lot of times it's in all of our jobs, it's we're taking care of customers. Everybody's got a customer, I tell people. And my assistant's customer is me. He doesn't have to please the client. He doesn't have to please A&R guy. He just has to please me and he has a, has a job. My customer is a little bit more complicated. Is it the artist? Is it the record company? Is it the manager? Or is it people? People want to hear a certain thing. And if I can give them that, who do you put at the top of that decision-making process? Because with any decision, there's always multiple ways to address it and to answer it. It's interesting, his answer, because there is just so many variables involved and It's not just about getting good at engineering or producing. There's business things. There's lifestyle choices, as you alluded to there. So after a period of, what, four years with Mutt? Yep. How how was the decision made to leave that situation and strike out on your own? He left it up to me. I mean, several times throughout my time working for him, he's left decisions up to me. And that's the way I like to do it, too. You tell people it's your choice to do whatever you want to do, but... Once you make a decision, you got to stick to it. And so even backtracking, even before he moved my family out there, we had finished a record in LA and a good friend of ours recently passed, Mike Shipley was mixing. And he asked me to stay after Mutt left because we were only doing three songs on a record and Mike was mixing it all. So after Mutt left, he said, do you want to stay for a while and just prep the mixes for me and, you know, do some editing and whatever. And I said, yeah, sure. So then uh, very shortly after that, he said, why don't you just stay here? You can get tons of work here. And at that time, Pro Tools editors and guys that had their own rigs were raking it in. I mean, I couldn't believe the amount of money those guys were making just editing vocals and timing drums and doing basics that I could do in my sleep. So I was working for him for a couple of weeks, working on those mixes. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, Mutt calls me one day and says, Kevin, I just need to know if you're coming back. If you're not coming back, let me know because I have to find somebody else. And it wasn't like guilting me into it. Just let me know what you want to do. And I'll take care of you if you come back or I'll take care of you. And if you don't, that's completely fine. And But I need to know because I'm planning work. And so I said, let me think about it. And I wasn't done with the master yet, the sensei. So I decided no matter how much money I could sit there and make in LA, I wanted to go learn more. So I did that. And so then at the end of the up record, it was a big chunk of work, a big long stretch. And we are family friends too, in a sense. So Sh- Shania was friends with my wife. And so she kind of knew that my wife was having some, let's call it some tiring effects of living in another language country. And it wasn't always easy to do the things that she wanted to do. And for all of us, and I was excited to put all the things I learned into practice for my own career too. I think Mutt probably sensed all that. He was really good at sensing who people were and where they were in life. And so he said, if you want to leave now, you can, but again, let me know if you're staying and let me know if you're leaving so I can handle it appropriately. Mm Mm-hmm. And he left up to me, totally. I wasn't really even thinking about it too seriously until he actually asked me, do you want to stay longer or do you want to go? And then I just thought about it for a little while and you make the decisions you make. And I finally told him, I think I kind of want to go try it out in, in the States. And he said, okay, great. Good luck. Let me help you. And he helped me. He didn't help me get a job or anything like that, but he certainly helped me. For instance, his immigration lawyer helped me with my immigration papers and helped get my family there and legally so I didn't have to come in on the sly. He helped me many ways. He gave me a big bonus when I left and gave me some money so I could kind of have a pad to not even panic mode when I first sat down. So that's how I kind of left is that basically I talked to my family. And while we all loved Switzerland and all loved the beautiful life there at the same time, my son was getting older. He wanted to play in bands, American style bands. And Switzerland's a very small place when it comes to like the music world. And so we all kind of thought, yeah, it might be good to try something else. In the back of my mind, I was thinking, I can always come back too. It's not like I have to leave and then I'm gone. I didn't know that. And as it turns out, I probably couldn't go back there because he ended up going back to an earlier guy that he had who's awesome himself and very great. And I'd worked for Mutt for seven years, so was in the club and knew the drill and all that. I believe he's still working for him now as his main main guy. So there might not have been an opportunity to go back there and do that job, but you sometimes have to put it out there and just see where it goes. And I was ready to take a shot, let's call it. 
So where did you end up coming to in the States? I moved to L.A., of course, because that's where everybody goes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't really know a lot of people. It was kind of difficult. But I had this one Pro Tools agent who said he'd get me work. And he got me one job. But that job was an awesome job because it was working for the chief engineer at Capital at the time, whose name was Howard Willing, who's a great engineer and, and producer. And it was him and Julian Raymond from Capital that used to hire me for a lot of editing things and a lot of bot sessions. And so that was a great gig. And those guys treated me pretty, pretty good. And that kept food on the table. And I wasn't producing records. I wasn't writing records. I wasn't even engineering records. I was just editing in the corner and sometimes the bathroom, wherever they could put little Kevy. But I was happy to be there and they paid me well. And in the end, when I was busy doing other things, my son started working for them too. So, I mean, they're a big part of my success there in LA. And that gave me a little bit of a platform and a little bit of land spot and breathing space where I could then start doing other things too. A lot of adjustment. First of all, you originally came from Canada and you're in Switzerland for a number of years and then you come to America and it's like, you come to Los Angeles, it's like big weather changes, cultural changes. You don't know anybody, but you do show up with Mutt Lang on your resume. I did. And I would assume that that would carry a a crap ton of weight. Well, I wish it would have carried more weight. (laughs) It was still tough, but honestly, I probably wouldn't have gotten that first gig if I didn't have that on my resume. So that was huge. And that on my resume lets me get a lot of other types of work. Nobody's going to hire me to produce a record on a high level when I have no producer credit. Nobody's going to hire me to engineer a main record if I have no engineering credit. But I did have engineering credit, so at least there's that. But they still weren't hiring me because I wasn't worked in the club. I didn't know enough people. I didn't know the artists. I didn't really know the game, if you can call it that. I had skills. And I had a couple credits and I worked for Mutt. And so that was huge. So Mutt got me into the door of the Pro Tools agent and that got me into the door of Capital. In fact, I mean, Mutt got me into the door of America first because the company that sponsored me into the country was an audio company from Florida called Audio One. And they were actually my visa holders. They were the guys that enabled me to get into the country. And that's because he was trying to sell a bunch of gear to Mutt previously. And in the end, Mutt didn't end up buying any gear from him. But I built a relationship because I had to tell them what gear we needed and I had to go through the prices and stuff, stuff like that. And so we became friends in that way. And so David Frangioni owned that company. And so he, when I wanted to go to America, I said, I don't need you to get me a gig. I already got work. All I need you to do is sign these documents. He was a forward thinker, let's call it. He was a forward thinker and said, yeah. I said, I know I've never met you before, <laughs> but I can work. He had a studio building company too. His wife was an artist who I eventually produced some music for. So it just really worked out in that in that case. And then fast forwarded to L.A. because I never moved to Florida. I went there to work for him every now and then. But I moved to L.A. And honestly, I have to say it was a lot tougher than I thought it was going to be. But I was lucky because, I, A, I could do the jobs. Like after working for Mutt those years, it's like I could sleep through any L.A. session, let me tell you that. <laughs> I mean... I was used to working with someone who would be going over with a fine-tooth comb of anything I did, working 16-hour days, that when I got into situations in L.A. with, let's say, producers not as intense, it was easy. Yeah. And sessions that were like 12 hours for some people is a long day. I'm going, this is like I got the day off. This is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So, So, I mean, I never had a difficult job ever again, or at least not until when I had a lot more responsibility and a different level of job, let's call it. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app 
And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Am I correct in saying the next big break for you would have been getting hired to do some engineering work for Ozzy? Yes, that was the second big break. I shouldn't say second. That was probably the third big break at that time. And oddly enough, again, the dots are connecting again from that first company, Audio One, who sponsored me into the country. They built Ozzy's home studio. Oh. So if I ever tell anybody anything, it's always treat people well, don't burn a bridge. And a good friend of mine, Brent Fitz, taught me that graceful exits are as important as first impressions. And so I maintain relationships. The studio owner in Saskatchewan, Grant Hall, who gave me my first job as an engineer, he's now at my studio now. He rents the studio sometimes. We have other business interests with each other. And I still have that relationship with him. And he used to pay me $8 an hour to like engineer as an engineer. So so anyways, yeah. So David Frangioni, the owner of Audio One, had built Ozzy's home studio, the, the one that you saw on his TV show. Mm-hmm. So Audio One. So David Frangioni, the owner of Audio One, calls me one night and says, I'm at Ozzy's place and he doesn't think the drum room is going to be good enough. And he knew, uh, knew I was a drummer too. He said, do you mind coming over here and just setting up the kit and miking it up and just showing him how good these drums can sound in here. And it was a very, very small room. I found out later. I said, yeah, no problem. Of course, of course I'm going to go, right? So I go over to Ozzy's place and set up the drums. And David had told me that he really likes the in the air tonight drum sound, as all of us do. <laughs> so can you make it sound like that? I go, yeah. So he had a, a TC verb unit there. And so I dialed up that, you know, he didn't have that kind of room that was big enough that I could just gate the room. So I had to dial up a gated verb on it and kind of made it sound as big as I possibly could. And then Ozzy came down probably for all of like three minutes, five minutes and came in and listened to them and talked to me for a couple of Yeah, it sounds good. And then left. And it was like, that was it. And then So I didn't really, you know, it's not like we had an instant bonding connection or anything like that. But I mean, I was pleasant. He was pleasant and he liked the sound of the drums and I made David's life better. But I did get to meet the support staff. Oz's assistant. Can't remember if I met Sharon at that time or not, but met the people around that were doing jobs for the Osbournes and all that. So as it turned out, a couple of weeks later, they needed someone else to come in and just assist on another session. I think it was a session for his daughter. And they just needed like a studio assistant kind of thing. So I went in there and did that and met them all again and stuff like that and kind of hung out for a little while and did the job, which wasn't anything. I was just patching, just doing typical assistant things because they didn't know me. They didn't know how good I was. <laughs> but but again, we talk more and more. And then again, the Mutt Lang thing comes up and I think Ozzy might have come down to say hi to and so that, that just kind of started the whole, I guess, the introduction into that project. And mm-hmm. they looked at me as an engineer. But I think originally they might have even been looking at me as a potential employee as such, because a little while later they called me and asked if I wanted to manage their studio hmm. and their home studio kind of thing. And I said, like, you mean like package up gear and send it to people to get fixed and book sessions and I accommodate other producers and that sort of thing. And they go, yeah. And I said, no, (laughs) I don't want to do that. I want to make records. It's not their problem what I came to LA for, but I came to LA to make records. Did you say that? Did you say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in making records. I said, no. And I did, I, you know, I said it in as politically correct, inoffensive way as I could. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I didn't ramble on, but I said, honestly, no, I'm engineering records. I'm producing. I'm, I got a, a great world doing that. And if you need me to engineer anything or if you need me to produce anything or you want that level of my services, please give me a call. I'll be there within seconds. But I don't really want to eight hours a day manage a studio or patch in LA2s for other people. Right. I wouldn't have said that exact thing because they wouldn't have known what an LA2 was. But you know what I'm saying is that I just said, I, I actually love making music and I'm going to concentrate on on that. But thank you for the offer. And, you know, I hope it goes goes well. And honestly, I thought, I literally get remember getting off the phone going, I will never hear from them ever again in my life. And I should have taken the job just to get my way, to work my way in around there again and just to be a part of the team. I mean, I liked all those people. Uh, even this, the peripheral staff were great. I mean, to this day, they're all great people. I thought, well, I screwed myself there. Would it have been so hard to patch in a couple of outboard compressors for other producers? No, it wouldn't have been hard. But I guess I wanted to stay focused on what I was doing. I did have a little bit of work, but not crazy work. It's not like I was run constantly 24-7. I mean, I'd have a week of solid work and then no work for a week and then a week of solid work and then no work and then a day of work. And it was very intermittent at that stage. But I guess I was just always worried. People all my life and in most people's lives have a tendency to remember you the way they first met you. And because I've gone through through so many stages of my life, it's like when I was in bands, I was a drummer. And when I remember going to some of these people after when I was a studio engineer going, hey, I'm an engineer now. Would you hire me? And they go, you're a drummer, right? Mm. Well, yeah, I am, but I'm also an engineer. And then when I was a producer, I produced, well, you're an engineer, right? It's always like they kind of meet you at that stage. And I guess, you know, because I was in a family band in that era, people met me when I was 14, 15 years old. Now, when you're 18, there's a big difference from 14 to 18 and from 18 to 25. Not so much now. I mean, you meet me in 10 years, I'll be probably doing the same thing. But when you set a precedent by telling somebody you're willing to clean toilets, well, they're going to keep asking to clean toilets. You know, I'm exaggerating here, but my dad always told me, be careful what you get good at because you might end up doing it for, for a long time. Anyways, long story short, I said, no, I wasn't interested in being a manager and didn't think they'd call. Well, guess what? Eventually they called again because he needed engineering. They already had a guy who was recording Zach Wilde and Mike Borden coming up with some riffs for Ozzy. Mm-hmm. The typical story of he had to go out of town for a week and could I fill in? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Kevin's moving in. You know, it is interesting because that guy was my friend. So that guy was a guy that worked for Audio One, the company that built this studio. And his name was Zach Fagan. He's an amazing dude. And he was my friend. And I was filling in for him. And he had to go to Florida to do some Audio One work or something. And it was a great time. Zach and I hit it off. Ozzy and I hit it off. Then I was working hand in hand with them every day, all day, all night. My week was up. I went home. Zach came back. You know, and and Zach is a great engineer. But again, here's another example of be careful what you get good at. He's a great studio builder and he's a great tech. In fact, he helped me build my second studio. So, you know, I'm giving you the the end of the story. We still kind of remain friends. But he gets back and then I knew that they're working. And a couple of days later, I got a call from the staff. They want to know if you want to come back and keep on working. And I said, yeah, I do. I called Zach first. I said, hey, man, I just got this call. Just letting you know. He goes, yeah, yeah, there's some talk about that. I mean, Zach has unending work because he's really good at what he does too. But he was the first to say, I'm not the musician you are. I'm not the producer you are, engineer, all those kinds of things. I mean, I was just a little further on in my career, I think at that point, and he accepted that and we're still awesome friends. That's the whole don't get out of your chair because someone else may sit down in it story. And I'm always careful of that still. (laughs) I don't get up out of my chair. I work with the same band. I've been working with Five Finger for like 12 years now. I haven't gotten out of the chair yet. In short, you went from that point to producing and writing with Zach Wilde and Ozzy and working on this record that turned out really great. Thanks. Thanks, man. The cliff notes are they hired me and with a work for hire agreement saying I'm just there to get sounds. And I fully accepted that. But as Mutt said, just get good. While I was not getting any gigs and not getting paid, I was trying to get good. And so when they needed something that wasn't in my list that they thought I was able to do or wanted me to do, I would just do it. And I respectfully do it. I wasn't trapping on anybody's toes. 
But anytime that there is an opportunity, I took it. And it was, that was really the best example or the, of anybody I know of taking advantage of the opportunities given. You know, originally I was there to record drums. Mm-hmm. If you want to know how that, that started, it was I was there to make the drums sound like Phil Collins. <laughs> and then the next thing, it turns into you producing the record. Yeah, but but honestly, it sounds crazy, but even now I can look back and say I was ready for that. At least I was in a certain level of readiness, let's call it, in, in the sense that I was capable. I wish I could have produced that record with the skills I have now. I wish they could go back and redo it like everybody probably does. I wish I could redo the second record I did with them too. I mean, you get better at your job, but at the same time, by the time I was helping them write songs, I'd written a thousand songs. So it's not like it was like a new experience to me. By the time that, you know, I mean, I they never officially asked me to produce, I don't think. I think at one point after I got the engineering contract, then later on, a couple months later, they sent me an arranger contract, not producer contract, an arranger contract. And then once they found out I was contributing to the writing, then I got another contract and eventually got the producer contract, you know. So it was a stage staged game and I was having to prove myself every step of the way, which I was completely okay with. It was an incredible opportunity and I wasn't I was going to do everything I could to make sure I did it, did it right. It was just really a, a year of incredible opportunity. Once again, taking a big jump forward in time, you're now in Nevada. You're in Las Vegas. Is that correct? That's true. And what led to the decision to leave Los Angeles and go to Las Vegas? Really, like most times of transition in my life, my wife, Kemney. <laughs> she, you know, we were renting a house in LA there. This is all pre-Ozzy too. So th- I hadn't even gotten the Ozzy gig yet. I was at a stage where, you know, Capital and some other people were sending me drives to fix and mix or whatever I needed to do for, for them at that time. Occasionally I'd be going to a studio and I had some other clients, just some bands and stuff I was producing on the side at my house. I finally looked at it going, there's nothing I need to be in LA for. And we had gone to Vegas for like a vacation, like for a three-day weekend. Had a great freaking time and realize house prices are like less than half here. My wife really wanted to have a house and buy a house and not be renters and that. And I was I was on board. So we just ran, we looked around like some people do when they travel. I wonder what the price of a house is here. And, you know, we get like twice a house for, for half the price and it's only an hour. The flight took us an hour. So if I had a gig in town, there I could go back. You know, I didn't calculate the pre-board time and the checking in your gear time and the renting the car time and all that. As a drive, it was a three and a half hour drive. So I thought, well, this is this is great. Let's just let's move here. Capital is currying me the drives out to West Hills anyway, so they might as well courier at FedEx, you know, instead of like a local courier. I asked them, Do you care where I am? No, we don't care. I found a house in Vegas that had a separate little room with a separate air conditioning system and everything. It was the perfect little place. And we found a house out here and moved. And, you know, I was in panic mode as I'm driving out here in the in the U-Haul truck going, have I just made the worst move of my entire life? Everything was going so well. And all of a sudden it's not. Uh, well, it was though, because I mean, Vegas has really contributed to my success. But long story short, I get out here and, and kind of kick around for a little while. And about six months later, or maybe a year, then I get the Aussie call, like the real call, not the first call when I was setting up the drums. That happened while I was living in LA. But that shows you a bit of the timeline of how long that relationship kind of took. And so by the time I was working on that record, by the time they called me to like just engineer to fill in for my friend, I had a little PT Cruiser, I'd drive into town. And I'd stay at my sister-in-law Schland's house for the week. And Friday, I'd drive back home. Hmm. And that went on indefinitely for that record. And I didn't even want to tell them I didn't live in town because I didn't want them to hire somebody else who was more flexible. So if they called me on Monday, wanted me to be there that day, I was getting in the car like as they were calling me on the phone. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I wasn't letting them know I wasn't available. And so it was about three months in, you know, because that record took some time. So it was three months in that I, Zach wanted to work like till 4 a.m. on a Friday night. And I finally said, you know, I got a a four hour drive ahead of me. So could we wrap it up by midnight? And I knew him well enough by then. And he goes, what, what do you mean? I go, yeah, I'm, I I still got to get home. He said, you don't live in town? No, I live in Vegas. What? Once I knew I was locked in and there wasn't hiring anybody else, then I let them know where I lived. And I still wasn't a problem. I'd still get there every time they needed me to get there. And sometimes I flew, sometimes I drove. I thought it was smarter not to change my LA cell phone number and, and not to let people know I wasn't there. I mean, some people still still think I'm there. I think that's a great strategy. <laughs> yeah. 
So you're in Vegas, you have a studio, Kane, your son, work, has worked with you on uh, quite a bit of stuff. And we're kind of circling back now to the family affair, right? You know, it started out with the family band and you kind of carried on that tradition with Kane. And who better to have at your side than your son and, and that trust and uh, familial tie? I should mention to you that my daughter actually manages me and runs my studio here too. It's truly a family affair now. And she's, you know, I've had different managers in my life. And by far is she's like heads and tails ab- above everybody else for what she lacked in initial knowledge. She's, she made up for in so much so many ways. And now she knows so much more because she's so intimate with my details and and my world is that it's like me managing myself in a certain sense, except she has more time. Yeah. My previous managers, I mean, I could tell you to this day, if I call them up right now, hey, what what is an act of rock pay? Meaning like if you're on the publishing, if you are just on the sales, what is that? How much money does that make? They wouldn't even know. But my daughter knows because she's cashing my checks (laughs) and doing my books. And and helping me negotiate my deals and all that sort of thing. So so it's my son is involved as a creative partner, but my daughter is definitely hugely involved as a business partner too. What's your financial advice to other people in this business of audio? My financial advice is this. I have a couple of different things to say on that because I think that's one area that I've actually done okay at, oddly enough. And that is that, first of all, buy only what you need. I wasn't the guy that had four vocal mics and 10 guitars and this and that. I wouldn't even buy a new hard drive because hard drive prices would go go down every month. So it's like I would only buy whatever I needed to and that kept my overhead down. Now, some of that was because of circumstance. I had a family. I couldn't afford to buy all, all these things. But I think people get sucked into the gear hole of you need this now to make a good record. You need this and you don't. You hardly need anything these days. So I guess what I'm really saying is spend your money wisely, not on urges. But more so than that, I'd say a lot of the things that I have going for me now are because I handle things like a businessman. You know, there's two words in music business and one of them is business. Mm -hmm. The music's the easy part. The music's something we all wake up thinking about and wanting to do. The business is like pulling teeth. When I think my ability to get a house or when I bought the studio, I mean, it's a 13,000 square foot building with four studios in it. It wasn't cheap and no bank's going to give you a money for that unless you have have it going on. But what really what they needed is organization. I would I would tell people to handle your books really well like a business. Don't have the receipts in a shoebox. Don't not know if you're making money on a project. Just truly understand where you're at, where your money comes from. I mean, I used to make my daughter cry because I would make her do my QuickBooks. I, I say make her, but give her, gave her a job to do my QuickBooks and she didn't know how to do it and she'd cry. And now she has a company that does books for musicians and companies. And, you know, she's a business manager of sorts. That was really important because when I went to get a loan for my studio, it's like, you know, you have your last three years taxes and everything looks professional. And I had a real tax accountant do it, even when I could barely afford it. The books look like a proper business and I was incorporated and all my royalty stream comes into my company, you know, different things like like that. So operate it as, as much as you are afforded like a real business. And if you don't have a daughter to do your books, then do them yourself. You know, I'd rather be making music than sitting there on a computer, you know, entering, you know, income and, you know, bills and that sort of thing. But now it's never been easier. And the third thing is pay attention to your contracts hmm. and to the negotiation. Nobody cares about you like you. No lawyer is going to remember what your deals were. No manager, if he manages 60 other guys, he, you know, he may be a great guy and a great manager, but he still does not care about you like you care about you. And I would say that that's one of the other things. Some of the contracts I've been able to negotiate were because I was keeping my eye on the ball and I was able to think in different ways than maybe a manager doesn't think because he's not the guy in the trenches. And that's taught me a lot and taught my my son and daughter a lot too. But I failed in many ways too. And that is the opposite of that, not keeping my own on the ball. I mean, I, you could probably have a whole podcast on sound exchange of producers who didn't have their sound exchanges, LODs, filed correctly. None of us thought that made too much money. Back in 2006, it didn't. And for the for the listener that doesn't know, you're talking about letters of direction. Yeah, letters of direction. And even when you have them in a contract, that doesn't mean they get filed. 
I have those signed copies, letter of directions from early in my career. And now Chloe has to spend time chasing these people down because that exchange needs different documents. You know, so that was an example of the opposite of me not taking care of business, not following. And I honestly, I just didn't know how it worked. I didn't know you had to check with the record company to make sure the artist lawyer sent the letter of direction in. But all of a sudden, I'm never being accounted to on on my uh, royalties. And why? Well, the record company doesn't have any knowledge of that. I mean, that's that's a big answer and waste too much time, but basically watch what you spend, treat it like a business, keep your eye on the ball and make sure your contracts are, are solid. Kevin, it's really been a, a pleasure to talk to you. We're going to inevitably talk again because there's so much more to learn about you. And just these stories alone about Mutt Lang and Ozzy and, and the things you've learned, that's, that's some pretty amazing stuff. And you've had a what on the outside seems like a great career up to this point. Yeah, I've been, I've been really blessed. You know, I, I, I really have, you know. I mean, we all think about the bad luck in our lives and the bad things that happen, but some of those bad things that happened to me were the best things that ever happened to me. So I would say if that's one thing I tell your listeners is never lose faith. Keep your nose down, keep grinding, and, and it'll work. I mean, if your heart's true. If your heart's true, don't stop. Just, just get good. Just get good, right. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kevin. Great to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Kevin Churko. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Want to, of course, thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith there at the top with the lovely voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called audio life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com. Check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.